Welcome to the Nightmare Emporium. Here we take a deep dive into some grisly tales that are bound to make you lose your head. Now, let's check in with our host, the macabre Marvel herself, to see what she has in store for us this week. <laughs> Black Hollow. We were children, really. What did we know of anything? Sure, compassionate, confident, and going to live forever, be young forever. We didn't understand. How could we? Picture a group of kids somewhere between learning to drive and riding the high, beautiful cusp of early, not quite adulthood riding in a car which belonged to someone else's parents. No one inside, laughing, has any idea, no real idea, of insurance, loan payments, the tedium of never quite having enough to cover what's needed. On the radio, Elvis, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Iron Maiden, Nirvana, Slipknot, Five Finger Death Punch, Gorilla Riot, doesn't matter. Kids cruising with the radio blasting is cross-generational. Common ground. The only thing that changes is the music. We liked rock. Speeding down back roads, we hurried to nowhere, high in the camaraderie of imagined or inflated slights, artificial oppression, or assumed captivity. Finding solidarity in our complaints, our suffering, we used pain as the mortar to cement our love for each other. Nothing belongs like belonging. I remember testing the wind resistance with my hand, skating my fingers on the currents like a coaster riding invisible tracks. Late summer afternoon heat baked down on the asphalt, radiating back up again. If not for our speed, the humid air would have been stagnant and hard to breathe. As it was cooled by the big Bonneville, tickling the sweat on our brow and tossing our hair, I didn't mind. It felt good, being in this place with these people. We stopped at a gas station. We were hungry, thirsty. Good nature arguments followed about who owed who how much, and who bought what when. The arguing was bluster. Everyone departed the store with what they wanted. If someone was short, someone else stepped up. That's just what friends do. Waiting by the car while the rest of the guys to finish paying, I sipped my Dr. Pepper, snacked on a Snickers bar. It could have been any group of friends anywhere in the country, but they were mine. Michael, athletic, good-looking, a solid guy to have your back in a fight or as a wingman out and about. Darrell, like Mike, handsome, athletic, with the quickest wit of all of us, and that was saying something. Darrell wasn't a great wingman, as ladies tended to fight for his attention but you could always count on him for a laugh. Riley had been part of our group since kindergarten. She always knew the best places to chill without crowds and was also handy in a fight. Trey was like me, thin, bookish, introverted, into video games. How we managed to fit in with the other three is a mystery. We just clicked together, content in our discontent, I suppose. When I think back, that's how I like to see them. Happy, together, whole. 
summer sun surrounding them in a golden aura. Crossing the parking lot together, the four of them, drinking Dr. Peppers and laughing, embraced by the fragile immortality of our youth. Riley suggested we head out for a little-known swimming hole, a place called the Deer Hole. Most people didn't go there because there are many other, more accessible places to swim, which didn't require a hike through the mountains. We readily agreed. Riley knew all the spots. Back in the car, we continued along backcountry roads. Crowded on either side by lush green, we climbed sun-dappled hills and dipped into shadowy valleys where the air temperature dropped pleasantly. We parked the car at a scenic overlook, part of the Appalachian Trail stretching 2,190 miles from Maine to Georgia. While there were a few people picnicking at the attached park and more posing in front of the vistas, we started walking on the trail. Eventually, Riley saw what she'd been looking for. It was all trees and rocks to me, and took us onto a smaller game trail. As we put more distance between us and the crowds of granola heads at the trail, the woods became somber. Our conversation died, each person unwilling to desecrate the holy silence with vulgar words, like passing through a cemetery or ancient battlegrounds. The woods felt sacred, and we lowered our eyes to our feet, kept our mouths closed. We walked for close to an hour, keeping our thoughts to ourselves, when Riley spoke. There we go. Three words broke the melancholy spell around us. I became aware of the birds chirping and unseen animals rustling in the undergrowth. I heard the water. Insects resumed their buzzing as we formed a small semicircle around Riley. She pointed to a winding path leading down to a deep blue pond, roughly circular. It surfaced partly in the sun, partly beneath the shade of the surrounding trees. A switchback trail flanked by a waterfall, twisted back and forth through the hillside. Beneath the waterfall, a thick rope, once white but now weather-stained, knotted with handholds every foot, led to a small rock ledge twelve feet above the surface of the pond, perfect for diving. The shadows began to grow long, dark comes early in the mountains. I'd almost completely dried off. I liked to swim but the thought of all the dark water beneath me creeped me out. I couldn't shake the feeling of a rotten hand, flesh picked away in spots, or tentacles perhaps, grabbing my ankle, dragging me to impossible depths to devour me beneath the cold mountain. I left the water early while Mike and Darrell were challenging each other to increasingly difficult dives. After a time, the rest of the group made their way to the shoreline beside me. Off to the right, I heard the unmistakable gurgle of Trey's vape, or his douche flute as we affectionately called it, followed by the sickly sweet smell of cotton candy. To this day, I cannot stand that scent. It makes me nauseous. The conversation turned to the inevitable search for something to do. As it was getting on in the afternoon, I wanted to eat. Swimming always makes me hungry. In the end, dinner went out. Swimming makes everyone hungry. There was a diner attached to the gas station we'd stopped at for snacks, and it wasn't far. A unanimous decision was achieved in record time to head back for burgers and discuss further plans, after we'd eaten. Full of cheeseburger, fries, and sweet tea, I leaned back in the booth, putting some distance between the plate and myself. Now no longer hungry, the smell of ketchup was making me feel ill. I've always been that way. 
Ketchup smells so good at the start of a meal, but disgusting by the end. Riley smiled at me, as did Trey, both understanding. They knew me. The others continued eating, oblivious. Those two put away some food and were competitive about everything. So what's the plan? Mike asked around a mouthful of bacon cheeseburger. You guys want to go somewhere scary? Trey asked. Instantly intrigued, we readily agreed. Trey shared a few details. The place is called Black Hollow. I think it's near where we went swimming, but I'll Google it, be sure. What's Black Hollow? Never heard of it, Riley asked wide-eyed. My uncle told me about it. He said the entire area is haunted, but there's a house way back in the hollow where it's really bad, Trey said. Mike and Darrell paused their attempts to out-gorge one another. How bad? asked Daryl. Uncle said there are places in this world which are pure evil and don't, Trey made quote marks in the air with his fingers, don't abide human trespasses. Well, hell, Mike said, now we have to go. It's probably bull, said Darrell, picking at his fries, but I don't have anything better to do. Let's do it. We'd been to other haunted places. We'd gone to the haunted tracks where, according to a story, a school bus full of children were killed by a train. Whenever a car parked on the tracks, the ghosts of the children pushed the car clear. We dusted the bumper and the trunk with flour before stopping the car. Sure enough, the car rolled off the tracks, and there were tiny handprints left behind. Another time, we went to an underpass rumored to be haunted, but the only thing happening there were boredom and cold. We'd been to haunted mansions and asylums. Once, Darrell received a nasty scratch on his back from an invisible assailant. The scratch was raw and puffy and took nearly a week to heal. We thought we'd seen some things. We were wrong. On the drive over, Trey gave us the few details he had. His uncle told him Black Hollow was built on an old burial ground and was thus cursed. A quick Google search disproved that theory. Trey said the facts he discovered, and there were few, pointed to tragedy. Disease, namely smallpox, wiped out most of the families living in the area around the turn of the 20th century. The remaining people were plagued with madness and unsolved murder. Details were sketchy, but Trey said the theory of cursed ground made as much sense to him as any. The hollow got its name not from the infamous deeds committed there, but from a large family who settled in the area during the mid-1800s. Trey didn't find much on the Black family, where they were from, what happened to the survivors, or what they did for a living. The Blacks were just as much a mystery as the haunted ground they'd left as a legacy. Looking at the map on Trey's phone, it would have been easier to cut back to the deer hole, skirt the mountain, and end up near the back of Black Hollow. No one wanted to navigate the woods in the dark. And if those woods were haunted, it seemed better to have a quick means of escape ready. We followed spiderweb back roads around the mountain to our exit. A simple street sign, green and white like any other, read Black Hollow. Mike turned the car onto Black Hollow Road. The pavement ran to gravel in less than half a mile. Mike slowed the car to a mellow 25 miles an hour. Tires crunched along contentedly. The lightning bugs were out. The fields surrounding us were filled with flashing greenish-yellow messages. The mountains on either side quickly moved in to squeeze our little road in between them. Along with the lightning bugs, cicadas were out buzzing a droning song they'd waited 17 years underground to play. The evening would have been pleasant under other circumstances. We had the battlefield feeling again, like we were the trespassers, interlopers. 
unwanted and uninvited guests to an exclusive gathering. My thighs were tight, my guts were fluttering. I wanted to leave, to tell Mike to turn around and get us the hell out of there, but I wouldn't embarrass myself in front of my friends. God, I wish I had. The gravel road dead-ended in front of an old, dilapidated two-story farmhouse. A front porch, once maybe inviting, yawned mutely at us, boards missing like rotten teeth. The front door hung on a single hinge, a falling sentinel between us and the darkness within. Mike circled around to point the car out, away from the house. Just in case, he said, leaving the keys hanging in the ignition. We stepped out into a yard overgrown with weeds. All was silent except for the cicadas. They were, if anything, louder without the engine noise and rocky crunch of grinding gravel. A small dust cloud, thrown by the tires, followed us, clinging to the car, the windshield, making me sneeze. The oppressive feeling of being watched, being hated, broke my skin out in goose flesh. Darrell pulled flashlights from the trunk, one for each of us, and I heard him shout, Oh man, Mike, when did you get this? Dad gave it to me last Friday. Careful, I got it loaded with pumpkin balls. Riley, Trey, and I walked around the trunk to see what had him so excited. Mike lifted a pump shotgun by the stock. Keeping the barrel pointed skyward, Mike dropped the weapon onto his shoulder, cool and casual. The weapon was dark in the moonlight, sleek and deadly, leaning against Mike's shoulder like it had always been there. Why would we need that? Riley asked, mirroring my own thoughts. The house is abandoned, despite my keys to the willies. There hadn't even been any trash in the yard, indicating a distinct lack of squatters. Might be snakes, Mike answered. He'd never taken a weapon with us before, and I didn't think we needed one now. Our safety lay in our numbers. We didn't split up. We stuck together, going everywhere as a group. Riley rolled her eyes. She headed for the door, leading the way as usual. Trey followed, then me, with Darrell and Mike bringing up the rear. Riley lifted the door handle, and Trey put his shoulder to the wood and pushed. Together, they managed to get the door to scrape open. The first thing I noticed was a large wasp nest, its occupants, yellow and red striped, flitting their wings menacingly, but didn't take flight. Making my way across the uneven boards, I was grateful wasps were reluctant to fly in the dark. We gathered inside the threshold. A rectangle of moonlight illuminated a dusty wooden floor, hiding the rest of the space in a darker shadow, if not for our flashlights. Five beams bobbed to and fro, cutting the black. A staircase to our left led to a hallway which overlooked the entranceway. What I assumed was a parlor room was to our right, a large picture window overlooking the porch and the wasp nest, I thought. Above our heads, an old cast iron chandelier hung. A few of the holders still contain candles. Huh. I'd never seen a chandelier without electricity. The entranceway continued into the house, becoming the living room. The place seemed much larger on the inside. From the front yard, I would have guessed 30 feet, maybe 40, and you'd be in the backyard. We'd covered that distance, and were still standing just beneath the overlook. It didn't seem possible. I turned around, shining my light towards the open door. It appeared smaller, like we'd traveled further than our two dozen steps. If not for our flashlights, we wouldn't have been able to see anything. The interior was dark. A 
pair of French doors separated the living area from the kitchen. Durrell scraped the doors open, though they groaned a dusty protest. Our footsteps echoed there as there was no carpeting and almost no furniture at all. The walls were covered in silk wallpaper, which may have been striped yellow and white. It was faded and torn, peeling off the walls, so I couldn't be sure. Every so often, an empty cast-iron sconce molded to the plaster, most without a candle. Among with the falling wallpaper, framed photos stared at us. Hundreds of old black-and-white photos of somber children, scowling men, and severe women marked our passing with disapproval. I wondered why there were so many photos and almost no furniture. Who lives like that? The condemning stares were almost too much to bear. Mike swung the shotgun back and forth, muzzle down, like he was trying to decide on a target. Beyond the French doors, our view of Photography Hall was mercifully blocked. The weight of the stairs lingered. Well, said Riley, that was creepy. The rest of us barked out some much-needed, tension-relieving laughter. Where's all the furniture? Trey asked. Who decorates a house with those creepy pictures? Durrell res responded. A staircase in the kitchen led to the second floor. Another door hit a staircase to the basement. I didn't see a way other than the way we came in to get out. Up or down? I asked. Neither looked inviting. Up, said Riley. We went up the stairs, which smelled like mildew and neglect. Paint had fallen off the wood which had swollen and shrunk over time with moisture. The floor felt unsteady beneath our feet. At the apex, we found ourselves at the end of a long hallway, presumably the one which overlooked the entrance. A sharp, musky tang, almost like burnt caramel, filled the air. Is it me? Or, like, is the house growing? Riley asked. Yeah, it seemed bigger inside. Stinks, too. Mike answered. How can a house grow? Trey asked. Not being confrontational, he was scared. We all were. Trey was looking for a logical explanation for all of the illogical things we were experiencing. Listen! Durrell hissed. I heard it. A low drone not dissimilar to the cicadas. Behind that first door, Mike nodded in the direction. Standing in a semicircle outside the door, our ears to the wood, listening to an insect buzzing growing in pitch, louder and pulsing, as if it was aware of us. Oh, screw it, Trey said, flinging the door open and rushing across the threshold. Trey began screaming, but almost immediately his scream was cut off in a choking wretch. Trey had stomped into a room, nearly consumed by another yellow jacket nest. Throwing open the door, ripped into their papery domain. The wasps exploded into action, instantly covering Trey in their stinging, pulsing bodies. Somehow he managed to turn and slap the door closed, cutting the rest of us off from the fury of the swarm, but trapping himself inside. Hundreds of angry wasps made it into the hallway before Trey slammed the door. The air was filled with angry insects. Darrell knocked me against the wall as he ran past, slapping at his head. Mike, Riley, and I followed quickly, panicked, desperate to escape. 
We thundered down the stairs, pursued by the stinging mob. They were in my hair, stinging my scalp, on my clothes, following my friends, unaware that Trey was still upstairs. I banged my hip on the counter. In my frenzy, I hardly noticed. Darrell missed the French doors, rushing instead to the basement. Mike, Riley, and I followed. Shut the door! Shut the door! Mike screamed. I jerked it close behind me, distinctly aware of the sound of yellow jackets hitting the other side. Ping, ping, ping. Downstairs, in the dark, we slapped and crushed anything crawling on us. For several minutes, the only sound were Riley's crying, all of our moaning, and the slapping of hands followed by the stomping of feet. Eventually, the angry buzz died off, leaving us alone with our pain. I'd managed to hang on to my flashlight, and Riley still held hers. Trey? I asked. Upstairs, Riley said, choking off a sob. She sounded strange. Her lips and eyes swelled to cartoonish proportions. My left eye had already swollen almost completely shut. We need to go get him, Mike said. How? Darrell answered. We have to try, Riley said. If Trey hadn't shut the door, we'd be dead too. Trey saved us, I said. They were all over him, every inch. No way he survived. The relative few escapees nearly killed the four of us. We just have to go get help. Silence and nods greeted my statement. None of us liked admitting it, but Trey was likely dead. We needed help to recover his body. Looking around the basement for another exit besides the one to the kitchen, the ground floor tiles covered with grime stared at nothing, refusing to bulge. Otherwise, the basement stood as empty as the rest of the house, the only exception being a baby's wooden cradle against the back wall. Darrell approached the cradle. Riley gave him her light, which he used to peer cautiously inside. All we need is another swarm, Darrell said. No, it's empty. We're good. Darrell turned away. The cradle began to rock. The awful metallic cicada drone increased in intensity. Riley pointed at the rocking cradle and shouted a warning. Darrell, look out! It was lost in the insect buzz. I felt it vibrating in my chest. Forming a thought was difficult. From my angle, I couldn't see what came out of the cradle. But I saw Darrell drop to his knees as something chewed on his neck. Mike squeezed the trigger on his shotgun braked in a fresh shell and fired again. The roar of the blast was swallowed in the cacophony. Flames leapt from the barrel, and again, as Mike fired upon the thing on Darrell's back, he missed his mark and the cradle disintegrated. Blood splattered into the wall. Darrell was dropped face first onto the ground as his neck chewed through. Whatever was chewing on him shrieked, vanishing in the cradle's destruction. Mike grabbed me and shouted, Come on, we've got to go. Riley was running back up the stairs, back into the kitchen. I stumbled after Mike, who half-dragged me behind him. The terrible noise intensified, vibrating my teeth and causing my nose to bleed. Riley ran towards the entrance. Mike followed, and I staggered along behind. The photos on the wall were blank. Their occupants stood to either side of the hall, watching us run. We ran that impossible gauntlet, trying not to look right or left. All the while, the noise got even louder. I was having trouble moving. My bones shook. Riley reached the porch where she turned and pointed. Mike was still dragging me by the collar. 
Throwing me outside, he turned to fire at whatever Riley was pointing at. I stood up. Mike braced himself in the doorway, firing round after round into the black. A shadow on the overlook moved towards the stairs. The pumpkin ball shattered the railing, tore large, dusky hunks from the wall behind, and threw the figure. It continued down the stairs, floating, moving as if on rails, ever closer. Mike's shotgun clicked empty as it reached towards him. Mike kept himself between it and Riley and me. It grabbed him around the throat, pulling him back inside. I saw through its hand, Mike's flesh smoked and blistered beneath its shadowy touch. Run! Mike croaked as his head burst into flames. We ran. I barely managed to get in the passenger door before Riley slammed the car into drive. The insectile drone vibrated the mirrors, but I still saw Mike's flaming body being drug upstairs. A large black hand filled the doorway, still reaching for us. Go, go, Riley, drive! She didn't need any encouragement. Stomping the gas, accelerating away from the house. The hand continued reaching for us. As it cleared the porch, it burst into flame, reaching, beckoning as we sped away. Once back on the main road, Riley pulled over, and we sat there and held each other and cried. No one will believe what we saw, what we did. But we know there are places on this earth inhabited by evil, not of this world, which brooks no trespassing. Evil exists. Well, well, wasn't that just a scream? Until next time, our fiendish friends. Remember to stay scared, and sometimes it's more than just a story. Ha 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 ha!